0: You can turn with me in your Bibles uh, to James chapter 3, looking at verses 13 to 18 this morning. James chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible on you, uh, go ahead and just grab one. There should be one in the pew there in front of you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or one that you can read easily, um, just go ahead and take that one home. We want you to have it. Sounds like I died here. Have I died? Oh boy, that board has, has made the budget, made budget this, year this year for a new board, so, so. hopefully this is the end of, uh, of our troubles there. Just give them a minute to figure it out. Yeah, we good now? We got, there we go, we got it coming through. I can't speak loud enough for the people on Facebook, unfortunately, so uh, try as I may. All right, well, James chapter 3, uh, verses 13 and 18, and again, I just want you to have your Bibles open in front of you, um, that we can come together to God's Word. Um, there's an old Latin phrase, scientia est potentia, and uh, you may not recognize it in that form, um, but you've heard it before. It's a phrase you know. Uh, the fact that it's encapsulated in Latin tips us off to the fact that it's not a new thing. Um, it is uh, a well-known phrase. Phenomenon clearly perceived throughout history, across cultures. And yet I'll think you, I think you'll agree, um, this simple truth is putting itself on display uh, in an unprecedented way in our day and age. Um, the English translation of this old maxim is simple. I um, said, you heard it before, uh, information is power, right? Thomas Jefferson wielded this phrase as he set out to establish Uh, Universities across the early United States. Uh, Before that, it was used by English philosopher Francis Bacon. That's probably where it got its Latin uh, roots from in the 1500s. But well before Francis Bacon uh, lived a much greater philosopher named Solomon, and he wrote Proverbs 24:5. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. And so uh, it's not just an old phrase, uh, it actually has biblical roots. Uh, and yet, as, uh, as the Proverbs often operate, just because it's true doesn't necessarily mean that it's right or that it's always used the right way, and, uh, and I fear that is the case in our day, even in the church in our day, uh, and I'll say even in our church in our day, because I see it in my own heart, this underlying idea of information is power, used in a worldly way, a selfish way. There's a great danger in that. This has already split and destroyed churches around us. You probably know somebody who's going to a church um, that is in division right now because of this. It's tragic. This poses a grave threat to each of us. Think about the conversations you've had this last week or couple of weeks How many of them are defined by that escalating idea of information is power? I know this information. Oh, but I know this information. Oh, uh, but I have this information. Right? And even if that conversation stays friendly, um, whoever can spout the most facts comes away as the victor, as with the prize of power. Far too often, that conversation does not remain friendly. And that power struggle becomes tense, aggressive, divisive, even destructive. It drives wedges between brothers and sisters in Christ. It cripples and deforms the church of Christ, and by that it defames the very name of Christ. It never ceases to amaze me how the Word of God so aptly speaks to us in our day. And often the Lord, by His providence, leads us to... Uh, passage of scripture at just the right time, just the right passage. Um, This battle for power appears to have been happening in James's day. And James, as the pastor, is concerned about this in his flock. And so here in the second half of chapter three, he he turns to a very insightful uh, and culturally shocking description of true and false wisdom. Let me read James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, There will be disorder and every vile practice. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you um, as a needy, broken people as the people who need your wisdom so desperately. God, would you be at work in our hearts? Would you be um, faithful to use your word that it would not return void, but it would go out uh, and accomplish what you intend for it in us? Lord, would you guard our hearts and our tongues from worldly wisdom? Father, would you um, make us a people marked by your wisdom, by godly wisdom, the wisdom from above. Uh, Lord, that our church might be marked um, by gentleness and peace and righteousness to the glory of your name. So God, be at work in us. In my words, Lord, may they reflect uh, your word this morning. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So James opens with this piercing question, who is wise and understanding among you? Go ahead, give it some thought. He introduces us first to this test of true wisdom. Verse 13, um, the test of true wisdom. And we can see that the James' flow of thought here. He's been contrasting this idea of counterfeit faith versus True, genuine, authentic faith, looking at the effects of that true faith in the life of a believer. Chapter 2, he argued faith without works is dead. True, living, saving faith shows itself in a changed life. A life of faith is a life of active, growing obedience. Chapter 3, then, he, he draws out what that obedience might look like specifically uh, in the way we use our tongues. True faith will produce transformed speech, tongues that are not used for tearing others down, for cursing people who are made in God's image, but the tongue is used for worship of our Father in heaven. That's the right use of our tongues. Flowing out of that conversation, then he pushes just a little further beneath the surface. Authentic faith produces a transformed way of speaking. Beneath that, then, it must have already produced a a transformed way of thinking and so James is now addressing that kind of thinking that kind of wisdom that flows out of an authentic faith in Christ so the question who is wise and understanding among you is meant to cause us to pause and to consider what does that look like what is wisdom where do we see it how do you know who's wise and understanding? What do, we, what do we think of when we think of a wise person? A number of different things that, that easily pique our interest, kind of tune our ears in and cause us to, to listen to those who are speaking. Is it The person who knows much. That person has all the facts and the details. That person um, can win any argument because they they, they can quote the research verbatim or they can pull out scripture verse after scripture verse. Is that a wise person? Or what about the person who is bold and fearless? They will stand up for what they believe. They are unmovable. They, They know what they believe and why and they will not be budged. They can defend it from every angle. Perhaps it's the one who's passionate in what they believe you can just hear their heart pouring into it their emotion their sincerity they're just deeply moved as they speak or maybe it's the person who's articulate they they're they're the wordsmiths they can say it so well they can craft their words explain it easily so that it, it not only makes sense but as they explain it you just can't help but think there's no way that anyone could disagree What are the markers that we look for as we try to understand who is wise and understanding among us? And the implication then, is it you? Are you wise and understanding? And what would you look for in your own heart to make that discernment? And then James makes this unexpected left turn. Um, He's asking about wisdom and and understanding, but he answers his own question um, with an answer about character, specifically conduct, lifestyle that shows meekness. It's almost as if he asked one question and answered a different question. Who is wise? Well, you'll see it in his acts of humility. We think of Wisdom is happening in the mind. It's what you know. It's how you think. But, but similar to faith, James is saying, yes, but, but true wisdom will show itself, will live itself out in the way you live your life. And the kind of conduct that true wisdom produces is works in meekness, the humility of true wisdom. It's in humble actions. Now, humility is a fine virtue. No one would argue that. But but is it not something entirely different from wisdom? Couldn't someone be truly wise and just simply be lacking in or growing in humility? James says no. No true wisdom, authentic wisdom will show itself in meekness, gentleness, patience, kindness, humility. That is not what we expect. That is not how we typically define wisdom and it certainly would not have been what James's readers expected. The Greek culture, um, meekness, humility was was explicitly degraded. That that was a bad thing. You should not be a person of humility. They didn't honor that at all. That, That meek person, that humble person, that's weakness. He will get trampled over. The Hebrew culture should have known better But look at the way the Pharisees present themselves. We are the ones who know. We are the great and wise ones. Follow us. Don't question us. They would wear their large audacious robes. Their supposed holiness on grand display. They made their boxes, their phylacteries large on their heads that everyone could see. They stood out on the street corners and and prayed and, and heaped up their fancy words like jewels in their own crowns. Look at us. I am wise. And likewise, I think we love to listen to those who lift themselves up, who have a large platform. Those who build up their YouTube channel or pastor their mega church. And it's not that those things are necessarily wrong, but they're not necessarily indicators of true wisdom. James says true wisdom, authentic wisdom, will be shown in the good works of humility. We tend so quickly to to cling to this idea of information is power. If I can get more information, if I can get more understanding, um, then I'll be wise, then I'll have power, then I'll have influence. James says, true wisdom doesn't work that way. True wisdom doesn't show itself in gaining power, uh, but in humility, in serving others. The assumption here that he then fleshes out is that there are, in a sense, two different kinds of wisdom. There is the wisdom from above and wisdom from below. There is true wisdom and there is false wisdom. And the question, which, which kind of wisdom is controlling your heart and your life? And he shows three things about uh, each kind of wisdom in turn. Um, he asks, what is the heart of that wisdom? What is the source of that wisdom? And, and then what is the fruit of that wisdom? So, so what's the heart behind it? What drives it? What motivates it? What's at the root of it? And then what's its source? From where does it come? How do we, how do we get it? And then what's its fruit? What does it produce? What does it bring about in the world? And he turns first to this, this idea of counterfeit wisdom. The worldly wisdom, verses 14 to 16. He says this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For a jealousy and selfish ambition exists. There will be disorder and every vile practice. First, he he draws out the heart of wisdom, this worldly wisdom. What's going on beneath the surface of this counterfeit wisdom? And by the way, this idea of the counterfeit wisdom is is right here in in verse 14. Don't boast and be false to the truth. These things are in your heart. Don't, Don't brag about having wisdom. That's a lie. That's not true wisdom. So let's look at... This heart of false wisdom, it's rooted in two things, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's the opposite of meekness. It's the opposite of humility. It's all about me. I'm jealous of what others have. I want the influence that they have. It's about selfish ambition. I have have ambition. I have plans for myself and where I'm going. I'm I'm climbing the ladder here. I'm gaining power. I have have a status, a success that I'm striving for. My own self-exaltation. These people use their words to to bring others down as they lift themselves up. They call wisdom wisdom. But it's actually just their own strategy for getting ahead, for getting their own way, for promoting themselves, even at the cost of others. It's self-centered. They live in a world where their own ideas reign supreme. They see themselves as the ultimate standard of what is right and true. It suspiciously correlates with their selfish desires. Verse 15, he turns then to the source of this earthly wisdom. Where does this wisdom come from? And James starts with the negative. It's not the wisdom that comes down from above. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, um, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously without reproach to all, and it will be given to him. And then down in verse 17, he talks about every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. This kind of wisdom, this counterfeit wisdom is not that good gift that comes down from the Father. It's not the wisdom from above, it's the wisdom from below. And 1st James says that it's earthly and unspiritual. This wisdom is the wisdom from the world. It doesn't consider the things of the spirit, it doesn't consider the things of God first and foremost, it's it's short-sighted and earthly-minded, it just sees the, the here and now, things that this wisdom strives after, the, the judgments that it makes, the, the value judgments it makes about what's important are, are based on worldly values, the desires of the flesh, the standards of worldly success. How do I protect myself? How do I gain my influence? And then James says, it's also demonic. Though it is earthly and unspiritual. It's from this world. It doesn't see the things of the Spirit of God. Um, more than that, it's demonic. The root of it, the source of it, is Satan himself. Now, I don't think he's intending to say that, that this person is demon-possessed, necessarily, but rather that, that Satan his, and his demons are the, the masterminds behind this whole worldly system, this whole system of this world that, that delights in the exaltation of self, And the overlooking of God, that's that's Satan's propaganda machine at work. It's demonic. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul is concerned for the church. And he says this, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's exactly what's going on here. They're no longer sincerely devoted to Christ. They've begun to work for their own benefit. They've begun to push their own selfish ambitions, deceived by Satan. led astray into these unspiritual priorities that are consuming them. So that's the heart of it and the source of it. Finally, what is the fruit of this worldly wisdom? What does it produce? Where is it going? Well, look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. It's not a great end. That's the outcome. It's not pretty. Where there's jealousy, where there's selfish ambition, where those motives are the the directing factors of people's actions, you'll find disorder. Instability, chaos, it's tumultuous relationships, it's turbulence and bickering and fighting and tension, it's, it's the opposite of peace. And not only is there disorder, but James says there is every vile practice. There is no end to the list of sins that people fall into when, when jealousy and selfish ambition rule their hearts. Worldly wisdom looks very impressive at times. It may be incredibly enamoring, and it seems so powerful, so logical, so desirable. That's that's the thing that I want, to to be able to have a little more influence, to exalt myself a little bit. That's the the logic of the world that surrounds us. That's the water we're swimming in. Proverbs 14.12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. Don't write this off too quickly. It's easy to see that kind of in its worst crystallized form and say, well, that's really evil for really evil people, not me. I would never never do that. Rather than stop and ask, in what ways has this thinking made its way into my heart? We forget the deceitfulness of sin. We forget that this way seems right to a man. That's us. It makes sense. Yes, this kind of wisdom, um, if this is what rules your heart, if this is what defines you, then, then the bottom line is Christ is not in you. Authentic faith in Christ is absolutely contrary to this lifestyle. A person who is ruled by their own selfish ambition and bitter jealousy is not transformed by the gospel, is not ruled by Christ. You can't have both. And yet James is writing this warning to believers. Watch out for this. Be careful. Paul says to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 3, 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, sound familiar? Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So Paul is addressing the church in Corinth. He addresses them as brothers, and yet he's telling them, you're living in a way that's inconsistent with your faith. You continue to have this, this jealousy and this strife among you, and it's, it's fleshly, it's worldly, it's contrary to Christ. Galatians 5, verses 14 and 15, Paul warns, warns the church, Uh, Of Galatia, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the opposite of jealousy and selfish ambition. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Church, this has been a year of tension and stress a year of struggling to understand what is going on in our world, how to think about it, how to talk about it, how to interact with others. There are conspiracy theories galore. There are differing ideas. There's conflicting information. Uh, There there are various responses of, of fear or of anger or defensiveness or disbelief. It's really easy for us to get wrapped up in this. To get sucked in to this mess with this whole idea of information is power. If I can prove that I have all the right facts, that I'm the one who understands all of this, I'm the one with the clear perspective, then I can put others in their place. I can defend my position and the things that I want to do, that I'm going to do, and I'll have power. I think we've all had that conversation numerous times, haven't we? I'm guilty of it. And at its root, it actually doesn't even matter if your facts are right. It doesn't matter. You can have all the right information and still be a fool, as the Bible describes it, still be working in this worldly wisdom. The facts can get spun out into selfish ambition. By and large, I have been so proud of our church. Um, We have not been torn apart by this, as some churches have. I was talking with our elders after our last elders meeting, um, wrestling through these things, trying to figure out how to move forward in a way that honors the Lord. These are not easy questions. Uh, And I'm so thankful at the end of that meeting, saying, guys, these are the conversations that destroy churches, that, that, that go wrong. And if if the four of us sit down with selfish ambition on how we're going to lead the church, um, it's over. Pack it up. It's done. To this point, it has not divided our church in any significant way. But I don't take that for granted. I mean this in a loving way. Um, I don't think we're special. I don't think we're out of the woods yet. We have got to be on guard against this. And once COVID has passed, there will be something else. There will always be these things that, that threaten to divide us, that threaten, uh, that that tempt our selfish ambition to take hold of and run with. It, it's been the use of hymns or modern worship songs, right? It's been do we pad the pews or not pad the pews or carpet color or any number of things. It's not about the issue; it's about the heart. We must learn to think carefully um, about how we treat one another, how we talk to one another. If we begin to let differing opinions over masks or vaccines or anything else be, be fueled by selfish ambition, by, be inflamed by pride, if we begin to hold on to those personal preferences as a, as a higher value than we value the unity of the church and the love of the brothers, We'll end up devouring ourselves. Commentator Craig Bloomberg puts it this way. This chaos ruins both the credibility of the church in the eyes of the world and the ability of the church to minister effectively to its own congregation. When we fight for power in Christian circles, evil establishes a foothold. When we operate with worldly value, seeking our own honor and status, we even offer Satan himself an entrance into the household of God. That's tragic. Let that not be us. We need to put off that worldly wisdom. We need to be able to identify that, to see um, the, 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 the work of that in our own hearts and the pressure of that on us and be able to say, no, we're not going there. Let's look carefully at what needs to replace it. The wisdom from above. Verses 17 and 18. James says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now James tells us the same three things about this true wisdom, this wisdom from above, just in different order, but he shows us the source of this true wisdom and then the heart of true wisdom and then the fruit of true wisdom. The source is right up front, the source of this true wisdom, clear and simple. This is the wisdom that is from above. This is that good gift coming down from the Father of lights, this wisdom that the Lord gives to those who ask. It's easy to glance over that and I think not really truly consider what that means. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to have understanding? Do you, what do we do to get that? How do we get there? is it gained by by reading and studying accumulating knowledge and information or do we just kind of wait for it and hope that as i grow older i'll grow wiser you can gain worldly wisdom that way but true wisdom true wisdom is from above that changes everything worldly wisdom earthly and unspiritual wisdom and the demonic wisdom it sees and understands the the things of this world, and and bypasses, overlooks, makes no account for the glory of God. For his character and his promises, for his very existence. And so it it centers around self, working out in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. But Proverbs 9.10, on the contrary, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You can't even begin down the road toward true wisdom without the fear of the Lord. Not terrified fear, necessarily, though I think that's part of it, um, but but a knowledge of who He is, an awe and wonder of His glory. With earthly, unspiritual mindsets, all, all we have is selfish ambition. That's what makes sense to us. We need to defend and promote ourselves. Somebody has to do it. We need to fight and and struggle for our own well-being, for our own personal gain, to to get ahead, to make a place for ourselves. But the path of true wisdom is to give that up, to renounce that worldly wisdom, to renounce the service of self, and to see ourselves and our world in light of the fear of the Lord. In, In proper respect, and honor that is due His name. And where worldly wisdom produces this self-serving pride, the fear of the Lord produces meekness, humility. When we see God for who He is, that changes the way we live, the way we think. We see our own sinfulness, We see our own unworthiness before the Lord. We see our own frailty and brokenness. We see how small we truly are. And that directly translates into how we think about and treat other people. I'm not ultimate. I don't deserve that position. The Lord does. I'm not all-knowing. There's plenty I don't know. The Lord is the only one who's all-knowing. I'm not worthy of being exalted. The Lord is. So our entire demeanor is transformed. And that brings us to the the heart of true wisdom. Looking at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Look how different this is. This is radical. This This is craziness. This is so different from what we see around us. So different from what we often see in our own hearts. James gives these eight descriptors of what this wisdom from above looks like, what's at the heart of it. Um, the first, many would argue, and I think they're right, uh, is the main thing. James says, first of all, pure. That's the kind of the heading. Um, that word pure there could, could also be translated holy. And all seven others kind of fit underneath that, kind of fill in what that means. Um, but the Greek word here, pure, uh, holy, it's, it's undefiled. Innocent of wrong, morally blameless. Being pure also has this idea of singularity. It's not mixed. It has one focus. It doesn't have divided allegiances. Like that double-minded man from chapter 1, who asks God for wisdom, but he doubts. He looks partly to the Lord and then partly to himself. And James says that man must not expect to receive anything good from God. No, true wisdom is unmixed in its devotion to the Lord, um, and, and that produces a wisdom that's marked by these other seven descriptions. The last one seemed to be arranged into three groups, kind of linguistically there. You can, you can see it in the English, but um, Greek is far more specific on these things. So, um, but they, they brought it through in the translation. You see them arranged, first pure, then, and these next three kind of string together, you notice that, then Peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Um, They're actually even um, rhyming words in the Greek. Uh, True wisdom seeks peace, it doesn't divide between people, it seeks to bring people together. It values unity greatly, it expresses itself in a way that, that de escalates a conversation that seeks the common ground, that that treasures peace and unity, specifically in the church, far above personal opinion. I would far rather be wronged than divide the church. If what you call wisdom is driving wedges between you and others, you need to reconsider that. Now in our age of relativism, it needs to be said, we're not talking about neglecting the truth. The truth matters. As Ephesians 4.15 commands, however, um, we ought to speak the truth in love. We need to be like Christ. He said he was full of both grace and truth. They, they go together. They're not mutually exclusive. It's peaceable. And it's also gentle. Not beating others over the head with facts. But considering the the other person's heart, considering their frailty, treating our relationships with delicacy. And it's open to reason. This word literally means easily persuaded, not gullible, um, but true wisdom listens. It's ready to be corrected. It's ready to hear. The fear of the Lord reminds us, I am not unchanging. Only God is. I'm not all-knowing. I'm not all-wise. The more you read Christian history, you'll read these great men of the faith and this big, glaring error they had in front of their faces. My old theology prof used to say, every theologian has a wart on the end of his nose that everyone can see but him. We all do. We need to be ready. We need to expect to be corrected and instructed and grow together more I think about it, it's one of the most shocking things to me in our culture right now. We so frequently speak, myself included, as if we're the experts. We're the ones who see through all the smoke. We are the ones who are able to take all of the various pieces of information and misinformation and put it all together and I have the answer. Everyone else has been duped, but I know the truth and the truth is that's just not likely. The fear of the Lord would have us speak with humility that is open to reason. Listening to one another. Jealousy and selfish ambition don't actually seek the truth, right? They seek the glory of self. And so it it cannot tolerate being corrected. I cannot be wrong. I will not change my mind. That's to admit defeat. The wisdom... From above, true wisdom seeks the glory of God. And if we're seeking the glory of God, then it's our joy to be corrected. It's our joy to then see the truth and and give up on an error that we once held, even if that comes at personal embarrassment or cost. Philippians 4, 5 commands us, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Again, our fear of the Lord, our anticipation of the return of Christ, our our hope there ought to make us a reasonable people. People walk away from conversations with us and say, boy, we didn't disagree on a single thing, but he sure was reasonable. That was an edifying, gratifying conversation. I think I learned some things, and I think he learned some things. What a witness that would be to the world around us. If we would live this way, if we would grow in this true godly wisdom. So it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason. The next two words come together. They're both connected to that um, little adjective, full of. It's full of mercy and good fruits. Again, human wisdom, earthly wisdom, is not prone to mercy. Um, It's seeking self-exaltation. How do you get up higher? You push others down. A weak person, all the easier. I'll look all the better. God's wisdom is eager to reach down to the lowly. Seeks to, to let self down in order to serve. Wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord that seeks his glory, sees that opportunity to humbly serve as Christ humbly served us in order to lift up the weak, to strengthen them, to build them up. want it to be so much easier, so much more gratifying to self to knock them down. And so hence, this true wisdom then is full of good fruit. The fallout of these conversations, these interactions, and friendships, then is not people put down, it's people built up. There's good things following in its wake. And the last two speak of genuineness, um, the, the authenticity behind this true wisdom. It is impartial and sincere impartial um, literally means not judging and and the idea behind that is um, it's it's not asking um, should I be kind to this person because what kind of kickback will I get right it doesn't it doesn't look for personal benefit and treat some people different than other people Um, it's sincere literally sincere means without hypocrisy It's not secretly self-serving. It's actually genuinely serving others for the glory of the Lord. Sincerely, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit. Speaking of good fruit, then James moves into verse 18. Um, The fruit of this wisdom. What is the final effect? What does this wisdom produce? And he says this, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Sounds lovely. What does it mean? Um, I think it's more of a, uh, a proverb, really, than uh, it doesn't really do well to be dissected. Um, but the idea of a harvest in, in, a, in an ancient agrarian culture, that's that's riches, that's fullness. That's, uh, that's an overflow of, a, of abundance. He's lining us up for something, and we need to see it. This, this fruit needs to be compelling because, frankly, the earthly wisdom has a lot to offer, right? We just need to admit that. Earthly wisdom will gain you the respect of many people. Earthly wisdom will help you assert yourself in your workplace, in your home. It will help you protect yourself. It'll help you get ahead. It may get you quicker to that next promotion. By earthly wisdom, you can gain power and influence, wealth and ease and comfort in this life. It works. That's why people do it. It's earthly wisdom that fills the White House, is it not? It's It's earthly wisdom that makes CEOs and millionaires and billionaires. It's earthly wisdom that protects your pride and your rights, and there is much to be gained by earthly wisdom. And so we feel a great risk. There's a vulnerability here. This call to, to lay down that deep inner drive to give it up is so unnatural. It's a terrifying thing to be told to walk in humility, serve others. Well, who's going to serve me? Well, what if they take advantage of me? Well, what if, what if I get nothing out of this? What if I end up drained and empty? What's the fruit? What does this wisdom of God have to offer? And verse 18 The harvest of righteousness, this fullness of provision, a harvest of what? Righteousness, a harvest of what is honorable to the Lord, a harvest of what God honors and will reward, and it's sown, it's it's planted. You see the imagery there? It's, it's invested. there's an idea of, of this short-term gain, uh, loss, looking for long-term gain. And it's planted, it's invested in peace by those who make peace. Our self-sacrificing for the sake of peacemaking is planting seeds that produce righteousness. Sounds much like Jesus and the Beatitudes. Listen to these for what they are. Think about how radically countercultural this is, how much this clashes with that selfish ambition in our own hearts. Blessed are the poor in spirit. No, really? The weak? The poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I think James was pretty familiar with the teachings of Jesus. It's the Beatitudes. That's the wisdom from above. And it's so contrary to the way this world works. But with it, there is great reward. This passage is not about kind of peripheral actions in your life. This isn't about kind of exterior little minute changes. This is the core of who we are. What drives you? There are two different ways of life presented here. One serving and seeking self, the other walking in the fear of the Lord. And they're radically different. The first produces unspiritual and earthly wisdom. And though it may make great gains on this earth, um, it is demonic. And it does give rise to disorder and chaos and every vile practice. And in the end, it'll be subject to the wrath of God. The second option is the wisdom from God. And it takes great faith to set aside that earthly gain, to risk my own humiliation. In fact, to embrace it. To take self off the throne and trust the Lord. Seek His glory rather than my own. But... The end result is the opposite of disorder and evil. It's peace and righteousness. It is that which God honors and which in the end, uh, he will reward with an eternal reward. So what drives you? Test yourself. Look at your, your own conversations and your conduct. We need to be consistently on guard against this. Do we truly believe the Lord and live this out in our day-to-day conduct? Is it pure? Are you a maker of peace with gentleness and reasonableness? Are you full of mercy and good works, impartial and sincere? Or are you driven by selfish and earthly motives that produce disorder and all kinds of sin? Are you willing to surrender your life to give up seeking and and protecting your own glory to trust in the promises of the Lord and seek his rewards and to continue day by day rooting that out, looking for and finding those, those old habits, those sinful desires that work their way in trusting as Jesus said, Matthew 16 whoever would save his life that's worldly wisdom I will save my life. I will protect it and guard it and build it. Whoever will save his life will lose it. But Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Christ has given his life for us. That we might be forgiven. That we might have eternal hope and and reconciliation with God. But he calls us to a life given fully for him. A living sacrifice, a declaration that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I'm no longer seeking my kingdom and my glory, but the kingdom and glory of Christ. Renouncing that earthly wisdom from below and living in the wisdom from above. Worship team, why don't you guys come and prepare to lead us. We're going to close celebrating communion this morning rejoicing in what Christ has done to cover our sin, that we could be forgiven. Part of communion is also declaring this new life that we have in him. We all partake of one loaf as one body unified together, given life sustained, energized by by the blood of Christ. We live in his life. and So that's why Paul warns Before taking of the bread and the cup, we ought to examine ourselves carefully. We ought to be sure that we're not saying one thing by our partaking and another thing by our living. If there's ongoing sin that I'm unwilling to repent of, if I'm living in selfish ambition and not serving Christ, it's inconsistent. Or if there's division, if there's unforgiveness between you and another member of the body of Christ, it's a lie to then come together and say, oh, we have this great unity when we're living in bitterness and strife and unforgiveness. And So Paul says that some have become ill and even died uh, for taking the, uh, the, the supper of the Lord in an unworthy manner. And so I just encourage you to uh, examine yourselves. We all need to. And, and not that we would... Just write ourselves off as failures, but that we would come again to repentance. That if you have division between you and another brother or sister, um, you need to abstain now and you need to go from this place in humility and repentance and make it right. Humble yourself and fix it. Come again next week and partake together and and in in sincerity. That we might have this gracious sincere rejoicing in the gift of God um, in our salvation and our unity together.